Welcome to Talk is Jericho, the pot of thunder and rock and roll, and one of my longest friends in wrestling and a former lead writer and SVP of creative at WWE, the former one-time seventh most powerful person in WWE, Brian Gewertz returns to Talk is Jericho. He's got a new book out, and it's called There's Just One Problem, True Tales from the former one-time seventh most powerful person in WWE. It's a great read. You can get it at Amazon Books or wherever books are sold. Brian tells some great stories about his time at WWE as a writer and producer, some of the famous angles and promos he enjoyed working on the most and least. We talk about the rock concerts he created with Dwayne Johnson, my famous feud with Shawn Michaels in 2008, and the best and worst of the celebrity guest hosts on Raw. And believe me, we both name our least favorite of that era at the same time. Brian also uh, tells the crazy story about his experience in Wrestler's Court. Yes, the infamous Wrestler's Court. How he defended himself alongside Edge and Christian. Uh, He didn't do a very good job. What got him in trouble in the first place and how the Undertaker, who was the judge, decided his case and how that experience made Brian think about quitting the business but also earned him uh, the respect he needed to survive backstage in WWE. He talks about what it was like working closely with Vince McMahon and the rest of the creative team and how some of the lessons he learned at WWE have helped him since he left to work with Dwayne Johnson uh, becoming one of the highest executives at Rock's production company, Seven Bucks Productions. All right, let's get started. My old friend, Brian Gewertz. Brian Gewertz, as Steve Austin would say, is back on Talk is Jericho, starting now. One of uh, my oldest, I guess one of my oldest friends in wrestling at this point, Brian Gewertz, is here, and he has just released a book, which is amazing. And... Um, what made you decide to write a book after all of your illustrious years in the business and, of course, all the work you've been doing recently with Seven Bucks Productions and Dwayne Johnson? You know, it's just like one of those things. Actually, you know what? I would say that you were you're kind of like the amongst your many list of credits that you have as far as wrestler, rock star, general, raconteur and what have you. You're the gatekeeper to this book coming out, I think, because as writers, we all like live in the shadows and everything at WWE. You're not really, I mean, not all people necessarily agree with this philosophy, but it was certainly mine as far as be heard via, you know, your, your work, but not actually yourself being seen or heard. Uh, and then it all changed when I did my first ever podcast, Talk is Jericho back in oh. 2014 or whatever it is. Yeah. Because that kind of opened the, uh, you know, the floodgates as far as like, oh, wait a second, I could tell these stories and not look like a total idiot while doing it. And, you know, that kind of like led to do another podcast. And then that led to WWE calling me for ruthless aggression, you know, their TV series and stuff, which tended to work out just fine. You know, I wouldn't like call me like talking head of the year or anything, but I don't think (laughs) myself. And then it's like, you know what, like, all right, what else can I do here? Uh, And it seemed like, especially for me, like, I don't, you know, seven bucks, you know, Dwayne Johnson, Danny Garcia's production company, you know, we're doing a, you know, so much in television, you know, that's where I'm primarily, you know, land and, and film. Like, I don't know if, you know, doing like a full blown podcast, I don't know how you do it with everything that you do, you know, with touring and, and, you know, wrestling in AEW and everything, but you know, you have that gift of gab and t- I don't have nearly as many interesting things to say. So like, <laughs> rather than like doing a full blown podcast, I got at least, put all the good stuff into one entity and then go from there. Well, and, and the thing about the book, and once again, you can tell that you wrote it yourself because it's got your sense of humor in it. And 
anybody that knows you and how you write and all that sort of thing. But it's a lot of work yeah. to write a book. I don't think people realize that. Totally. You know, I started this, you know, right in the middle of the pandemic in 2020, you know, when we're staying home and, and still staying home, but really staying home in terms of like not even leaving the house or anything. Right. You know, you got to commit to it. You know, I know I committed to, you know, whatever is going to happen. There were no sports on TV, you know, which usually occupies a lot of my time. So it's like, I'm going to get a chapter a weekend done. I don't care if mm-hmm. I read this. I don't care if it sucks. And by the way, you and Mick Foley, as I, as I told you via text, you know, like your and Mick's books were hugely influential, you know, in, in writing this and putting this together, you know, as far as like tone and being able, you know, the straddling that fine line between not it being some sort of bitter, dirty laundry, what have you, right. but also not it being like a fluff nothingness. You know, I don't really have dirty laundry. I, m- I might have like a stain or two, or <laughs> but it's not really dirty. But yeah, I mean, like your books and you're so candid, especially your book. You know, I always marvel at reading your books because you crap on yourself more than anybody else. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's like you're always taking the piss out of yourself. It's like, yeah. And then and then they rejected it. Yeah. You know, it's like always that. And it's like, wow, it's like you'd be so humble. And there's a lot of rejection in WWE, you know, when I was writing there, you know, for every, you know, one or two ideas you get through, like, you know, twice as many, if not more, don't. So mm-hmm. kind of lent itself, you know, your books especially, but, you know, having that time and really just committing to it and putting all the work into it that needs to be done. You know, I, by the way, the only reason it's done is because the book publishers, uh, 12, said it needs to be done because as you know i'm sure you do this too every time you look at the chapter yes changes you could make every single time i'd still be writing this if they didn't say turn it in already yeah you sit there debating whether the or but is the proper word it's got to be but no it's got to be the no it's got to be and and like you start losing your perspective on everything but like i said i i love i love the title of the book and we can delve into that there's just one problem but first of all i want to talk about the the subtitle (laughs) <laughs> True tales from the former one-time seventh most powerful person in WWE. So I would like to li- hear the list of the seven, if you can, what puts you at seven. Obviously, Vince would be number one at the time. Yeah. Well, you know, this was this was taken from a real list, which I didn't quote the real list. But there was a real list from a uh, famed wrestling pay prescription newsletter site. Right. <laughs> It used to put like the the twenty top twenty most influential people in wrestling, and I'm like, huh? How do they know really how to verify that? And then yeah, one year I'll have to find the list. I mean, obviously, I remember at the time, you know, like Vince was obviously there, um, Stephanie, Dixie Carter, I think um, The Rock. I was ahead of Triple H. Triple H was eight. So that really tells you the, uh, <laughs> the scientific pedigree involved, no pun intended. Yeah, that's right. But yeah, I'll happily take seventh. And I also found it very funny because I kind of ripped off. I always, I mean, I love uh, the show Flight of the Concords. Yeah, of course. Right. Yeah. I think, I think their tagline when the show first came out was like New Zealand's fourth most popular parody folk band. Right, 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 right. That was kind of very funny. For people that don't know, you were actually, the highest up the food chain you got there was lead writer or what was your official title? Well, I was lead writer slash um, at some point 
became SVP of creative. But it's a very it's very weird kind of it's not like the traditional Hollywood hierarchy where there's like the showrunner, executive slash executive producer, then co-executive producers or other executive producers and story editors and, and that kind of thing. It's like at the time there were lead writers, head writer. I don't know. Actually, I don't know if there were head writers and lead writers at the same time. It was very, very a little confusing from an org chart standpoint, but I was uh-huh. basically the head of you know the creative team you know, for at least 10 years. And yeah, it is this very weird dichotomy because obviously you're not one of the boys. You don't take bumps. You're not in the ring. Although I did take one bump as documented in the book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On a snow wind day. And you're technically, you're the office, but you don't really feel like the office because like the office, you know, the people, you know, management, and maybe that was my problem. <laughs> I should have felt more like management, but I'm also like, you know, running to see you backstage and saying like, Oh, the revenge of the Sith trailer came out. Let's watch it. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. You know, it's like management's not doing that. So you're kind of like, you know, some somewhat teetering in between. Well, and, and that's actually, we can jump right into the, to one of the best stories in the book that I was there. And, you know, here we are, this corporate business. And even though in 19, you started in 1999, right? 2019. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was, it still was kind of, more old school than it is now, you know, with pro wrestling being so corporate and so huge and so much money at stake, even though it was only 23 years ago, 1999 was still almost like the wild west. And here you come as this hot young upstart writer and right away get thrown into the deep end of learning the kind of the politics and almost pettiness of the wrestling business with the famous wrestlers court. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I start the book off with it because, you know, there's a lot of I, I read a lot, you know, as, as we all do, we read a lot of books. And for someone, you know, famous, like like your first book, for instance, you know, you didn't even get to WWE because there was like a ton of interesting stuff that preceded it. Right. For me, uh, like and nobody knows who I am. So I definitely wanted to start the book off with a bang. Like we can get into me like watching, you know, superstars and running out of the room when Kamala was about to eat a live chicken on TNT. We can get into that <laughs> stuff later, but I really wanted to start with like a big bang as far as wrestlers court. So, you know, for those who don't know what it is, I, I, I don't think it exists anymore. I don't know if it can. It doesn't. Yeah. Can you imagine it existing now in this day and age? No way. No, no, it would, it would, the world would implode on itself, but this was kind of like a checks and balances kangaroo court type system, like by the boys for the boys I think it's prevalent or, or, you know, a very mild form of it is prevalent in other sports like baseball. Like if a rookie does something, they'll fine him and or he's got to buy beers for the clubhouse or something like that. But this is more. Right. If you violate a locker room rule, you get taken to wrestler's court. And I was, I think, the first writer who ever allegedly violated a rule backstage. And the rule that I violated, you know, what you get into was like edge at a comic book signing, someone gave him, when you hear this, you, you understand the severity of the infraction, uh, <laughs> him a, a flash action figure and edge knowing that I liked the flash. Like I, you know, even though technically speaking, I stopped reading comic books after crisis on infinite earths in the mid eighties, but I still dug the flash. You know, he died in that uh, series. It's been 35 years or whatever. <laughs> right. So, right. But, and they'll come back anyway. But he gave me a flash action figure. 
Bob Holly saw him giving me the flash action. Oh no. Is like the, the last person you want to see. If you're ever going to get a action figure slash doll from another wrestler, you don't want it to be in the vicinity of hardcore Holly watching. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> it also, you know, the, the, on the surface level, it's very, you know, light and funny. Like you got a doll, huh? But the subtext is actually kind of serious. Like the subtext that was happening here was, you know, in this particular case, Bob, who, by the way, I get along with great now. Um, I'm, and I'm very happy to say that because it's much different than it was, you know, this was in 2001. But, you know, Bob wasn't being used on TV as much. And Edge and Christian were all over the place. And here's the head writer, you know, getting a toy from one of the guys who's, you know, being featured uh, more than ever, really. Right. I mean, they're all over the show. They're always getting promo times. They're, you know, the five second poses thing is getting over and they're doing like, you know, fun backstage vignettes with Kurt and, you know, running around, you know, and Bob's TV time was was waning a little bit. So like that's the subtext is like, hey, these assholes are giving this goofy writer toys and getting on the air because of it. Now, of course, you know, the one thing had nothing to do with the other. He just happened to like, oh, someone gave me a flash. Here, why don't you take it? Yeah, it's, it's not like you're the one who's placing all these guys on TV. It's completely down to Vince who's getting the TV time. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is down to Vince, but it's also me pitching it. Gotcha. So it is connected a little bit or a lot of bit, <laughs> depending yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So he does have a legitimate beef then by thinking that these guys are bribing this guy and this guy's putting him on TV because they're giving him free toys. And you can see Bob Holly going, they're toys. He's giving them toys. What the hell kind of bullshit is this? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, like, the, I wasn't putting him on TV for the payola. That wasn't the case. Right. But at the same time, yeah, you could interpret that if you, you know, if you wanted to, if, if that's, you know, what you chose to uh, interpret that as. So, yeah, I had no idea. <laughs> I remember you afterwards coming up to me. And saying, dude, you should have had me represent you. I would have made a great lawyer. And you're right. But I didn't really, I had no idea what it was. I had no idea. I thought it was going to be like a tribunal or something. Right. That's why Stephanie told me, go grab pizza and beer. And I like ran up in the arena. We were in Oklahoma City. And this poor usher is like dealing with a lunatic running up to him going like, give me a box of pizza and beer. I'll pay you double, whatever it takes. <laughs> like, okay, I, we're not supposed to sell this before people are in the arena, but here, take what you need. Just leave me alone. So would you come down with like four pieces of pizza and two plastic cups of beer? Oh yeah. A single box of pizza, a single pie and a six pack. And there's literally every wrestler, every agent, every seamstress, every security, every oh single person gosh. in the company is there. And Triple H sitting literally right across from me, you know, because the setup was like the defendants, myself, Edge and Christian, we were all tried together, you know, sitting in the box, the, the makeshift jury box. And Kane, you know, Glenn Jacobs as the bailiff sitting behind us or standing behind us, really, because, you know, it wasn't imposing at <laughs> And then JBL, uh, and this is not corporate J.R. Ewing JBL. This is crazy long-haired Bradshaw JBL. He's the he judge, was. right? Or is he... He's the prosecutor. Oh, gosh. Undertaker was the judge. Oh, dude. So it was, and you know, as, as, as you know, as you experienced it, and that's why you said what you said to me afterwards, which I really could have used if I had the foresight enough to take you up on it or seek you out, was 
you know, Edge and Christian knowing what Wrestlers Court were, and later I found out being tipped off that they knew Wrestlers Court was coming. Yeah. As, as Christian said to me, uh, some guy named rhymes with uh, Bert Flangle. <laughs> Canary Bert. <laughs> yeah. So, but he didn't tell me. So, like, Edge and Christian had funny props. Like, they talk, they, they wrote their own book, How to Kiss Ass and Get Ahead. Right. It's like that old Bugs Bunny Daffy Duck uh, cartoon where Bugs does a routine and gets a standing ovation. And then Daffy does his thing and just cricket, literally crickets. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Every time I tried to say something, it just did not get over at all. How did you find, what was your final sentence? What was the final verdict? Well, first of all, guilty. Right. Um, <laughs> but, and, you know, in detail in the book, but like literally, like, like there's, I don't think there's ever been a wrestler's court like that where like so many people chimed in and it really got, like I thought Kane as the bailiff was there for more effect and pageantry, but he actually was needed as a bailiff to restrain people at certain points. <laughs> You know, X-Pac, who, again, I get along with great now, you know, but at the time was was pretty incensed over some things because it really it delved from the doll incident. You know, nobody was really talking about the doll other than me trying to talk about the Flash's origin story to dead silence. It was really more about, you know, all the locker room violations I had violated without knowing it. Right. Because you just don't know. Yeah. There's no there's no there's no handbook of rules to tell you how to act backstage. Exactly, which I really could have used. Yeah. And and some of it is, is is common sense, don't get me wrong. You know, maybe not now, post-COVID, but back then, you know, shaking hands, huge, huge deal. What was Perry Saturn's quote? Uh, Perry <laughs> Perry was, said something to the effect of, like, he'd been, I've been here 67 days, and he only shook my hand 31 of those days, and then the other days he didn't even shake my hand or nothing. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> and the one line that that uh, that you forgot to put in the book, which I was so surprised, was you're like, as as it started to kind of get a little bit loosened up, you're like, if you guys ever have any ideas for creative, just just come to me. I'm, I'm a wide open. Bob was like, I got an idea for you. I become the world <laughs> champion. How's that for an idea? Yeah, I don't know. I, it might, <laughs> I might be in a later chapter. I don't remember. Really look at it. But yeah, that was one of those things. And then of course. After the trial, I went up to him and I'm like, because 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 the end of the trial, let me let me go back. Taker did find us guilty, which was kind of a foregone conclusion. Right. But you know, Taker, as you know, is really cool. It wasn't like guilty, you piece of shit, get out of the locker room forever. You know, like he he passed sentence. I forget what Edge and Christian, you know, paid him off. I don't know what th 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 this was relatively light. But for me, it was he wanted me to write a I think it was, was it 2000 or 5,000? It was a big essay he wanted me to write in terms of why I respect the business, which I thought was interesting. And, and I, you know, didn't blow it off. I mean, I took it seriously and I, and I really wish I kept it, but I gave it to Taker who, who gave me feedback. I had to wait a full week for him to read it. He wouldn't read it on the spot. He had things to do. He's the freaking undertaker. <laughs> but the next week he was like a plus. And it really like opened up in that essay. It wasn't like, some sarcastic blow off thing uh, and also like hang out with Funaki and stuff like that, because it was, had been alleged that I had blown them off. Right. Uh, again, the, the subtlety of the nod of recognition versus the physical handshake. But that, but that, that, that meant, that meant a lot at the time 
and even now just the respect of guys in the locker room and, and like like you said people didn't know who you were at first so that almost in a strange way got you respect from a lot of those guys to endear that and to come back you know I'm, I'm sure I mean I remember talking to you and you were like at one point saying, I don't know if I even want to come back you know it's it's super embarrassing or whatever it was like was it hard for you to kind of like understand what had just happened I was definitely shook for the first time ever in my life I asked Pat for one of his cigarettes, Pat Patterson, and and literally smoked a cigarette afterwards. I, I don't smoke and I didn't smoke before and I haven't smoked a cigarette since. But in that moment, that seemed to be and not trying to be funny either. That just seemed right, to be like right. a necessary thing because Pat came in, Pat came in, you know, halfway through, if you recall. And Pat didn't realize that there was like tension going on because usually these things are a little like a little more loose tongue in cheek you know, not all of them, but most of them. And then Pat comes in and goes, that little shit, he changed my matches all the time. And like, you know, instead of everyone laughing, they were like, he does what? <laughs> no, no, I didn't. He's joking. Yeah. So it ended with, with me kind of giving this like heartfelt, you know, speech after all attempts at levity and comedy had failed spectacularly, you know, to the boys and, and, and the lot, you know, the entire locker room and, and the staff and everything basically saying, you know, that I am really, yes, introverted. And, and, you know, I'm like not the guy that like, you know, will, will run up to people and start kibitzing and shaking hands and what have you. But I need to get better at that because that's the, you know, that's the locker room culture that, that they don't need to adjust to me. I need to adjust to, to the locker room culture. Right. Um, and, and get on track. And, and seriously, you know, at the time too, you're writing for everybody, even though at TV, you know, I tend to gravitate and work with people I was comfortable with and had a rapport with. So I'd be working with you and Rock and Edge and Christian and and McFoley and 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 Kurt. Kurt, yeah. You know, and, and Hurricane and and Booker and Goldust and like that was like my comfort zone. But you know, at the same time, when you're doing that, the people that you're not working with and and they see you like see you and me in the corner watching. Star Wars videos and laughing and everything. And this person's either not on TV or not working with me ever. And, you know, thinking, well, what the hell's that guy's problem? Was he too good to not work with his buddies or whatever? Right. So, yeah, it was, I never really considered after wrestlers court quitting. I considered quitting before wrestlers court as I wrote, because I saw another writer in there and I was like, Nope, he cannot be in here. He needs to leave. <laughs> I cannot have him like telling stories to every new writer that comes in about this. Like there cannot be any writer other than Paul Heyman and Michael Hayes and Bruce. I guess there were a lot of writers, but there cannot be any moral regular <laughs> yeah. writers yeah. in this thing. Let's talk a little bit, because uh, once again, there, there's, there's so much to discuss in, in a short time, but, and obviously we don't need to get discuss the reasons, but now Vince, Vince is gone, but Working with Vince and working for Vince, how did you, there's so many great stories of, of the ups and downs of working with him, but getting ideas across to Vince, what was the secret in doing that? Because we know how interesting of a character he was who could switch his mindset very quickly, be on your side one moment, be mocking you the next, <laughs> give me good ideas, Brian, damn it, you don't, you give me too many good ideas, you know, like kind of go through a little bit of that because there's been a lot of examples that you and I have alone of just the things that Vince would make us do. Yeah, well, the quote, damn it, Brian, you're giving me too many good ideas, has never been uttered <laughs> by Vince or anyone, for that matter. But you know what? Honestly, 
Toward, I mean, towards the end, I think you needed to, once you got to work with him a little bit and you understood his taste and you understood his, you know, you've seen, you've been in literally hundreds upon hundreds of meetings and you've seen his reactions to things. You know, you have a little bit of a sense of what he's going to go for and what he's not going to go for, although he will surprise you. But really in that spot, especially at the beginning, and that's kind of one of the advantages all new writers have, no matter who they're pitching to whether, you know, it's, it's Triple H, Vince, whoever, however the uh, system at AEW works. At the time, all I had was like, I think this is a good idea and I'm going to pitch it. And if he likes it, he likes it. And if he doesn't, he doesn't. But I need to go down swinging with my best shot because what's the sense in like going like the safe route and going like, you know, or, or trying to play the game of what do you think he's going to like? It's like, I don't know. I can't predict that. All I know is this is what I think is good. And this is what I think the people are going to want to see. And this is going to be fun. I mean, I remember pitching, like even like, I don't know, like a pitching. I I think you only wrestled Mick once on SmackDown. I think, yeah, right before he left. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember pitching that match because I knew he was going to leave. And it's like, I damn it. I'm a, as a fan would love to see Jericho versus Mankind. Mm-hmm. I've never seen that match. I think it will be good. I don't know how the reaction to it's going to be. But I, maybe it was in Anaheim. I don't remember. I think so. Yeah, good memory. Yeah, it's so weird. I don't. I don't remember anything from yesterday. Like I remember <laughs> in, in two thousand. But it's like you know what? This would be a really cool match, and I've never seen that clash of styles and and, and what have you. I'm going to throw it out there and see what he thinks. And then you know, sometimes you get the. <laughs> so oftentimes, as you as you've experienced too, you'll get like the grunt. And just like that's strong, <laughs> and then like strong as in like good strong. Oh or, yeah! And then next thing you know, it's like great. That'll be the crossover seg six. I'm like oh, I guess that was, uh, I guess that was good strong. And, and that's the thing too, like like to come up with week after week, like you just mentioned. Okay, so now you you're working your way up to to pitch Jericho versus Foley, and it's accepted as crossover seg six. It's like okay, great. Now I still got another. 10 segments more to write. <laughs> well, especially back then, because until I'd say 2002, and again, I started November 99, and, and until 2002, and, and this is something going in, I had no idea that this was the case, was we would write SmackDown Tuesday morning, blank sheet of paper. And the show is Tuesday night. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the production <laughs> meetings Tuesday at noon or one or three. Right. So... We would, you know, gather in the hotel suite at like 7 a.m. or, you know, this is after either driving or flying in from Raw the night before. And it would be like, all right, what do you guys got? And we would just pitch the show out because there was literally like maybe if you were lucky, there might be a segment that carried over because the brands weren't split back then. So maybe something carried over from Raw into SmackDown. But at the time, like, again, eventually it evolved to the point where, you know, you had the shows written out in advance and then you'd have two different writing teams. And then you'd have, you know, at least granted it might change in the producers meeting or something, but at least a game plan and and something written out. But, yeah, for the first like two years, it was order breakfast and let's write Smackdown in the morning and produce it in the afternoon. It's nuts. What were some of kind of like, because there were some Vince rules that you and I discovered, and I'll, I'll use the one that I know for sure you'll remember. And let me know if there's ever any other ones. The, the classic Vince loves apes. <laughs> and we had to do a Planet of the Apes segment with Stephanie 
long story short, the apes came out and threw a cake in her face because why wouldn't they? But the, the, the word that was told to me was that you said Vince loves apes. Well, you know, here's the thing. <laughs> I just kind of came to this realization, you know, because like when, you're, when you're a writer, and again, I'm only using my frame of reference from 99 to really 2000, end of 2012. I mean, 2012 to 2015, I was, I was on the team, but I was not going to TV unless, you know, Rock was there and more, you know, working part-time as a consultant. But when, when you're there full-time, you're, you're not really just a writer. You're also an agent, you know, not a Sergeant Slaughter agent, but an agent like a Hollywood agent oh. where you have your clients. And, and sometimes it would be figured out in terms of your call sheet. Like back then we'd have, we'd split up the wrestlers that we would call, you know, before we get to the show to tell them what they're doing on TV. Right. And usually the people that you call are the people you work closely with. You know, because there's this level of comfort. So I had, you know, again, like the usual cast of characters, you know, when when Chris Jericho Planet of the Apes segment with Stephanie is deemed, I'm now the agent and I need to sell this to Chris Jericho as far as why this will be a good idea. Right. And so I'm looking, you know, for like, what's the flashiest, you know, the correct answer probably would have been like, this is huge Hollywood integration with a major Tim Burton movie. Right. But in the heat of the moment, I think I just spouted, you know, Vince loves apes. (laughs) And to be able to do a segment with something he loves so much, but he did love apes. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) It wasn't just a lot. And it's one of those things too, where I was so impressed with SummerSlam because product integration, which is when you have like a movie or a TV show or a, you know, Subway sandwiches or whatever it is. And you got to, you know, you're getting paid a lot of money to integrate it into the show. Right. And you got to find creative ways to use it. You know, I think SummerSlam, they did a spot with the male model agency and water that was, you know, edited and really, really well done and entertaining and everything. We had, you know, the Planet of the Apes movie coming out, the uh, the Wahlberg one, I think. Mm-hmm. And all we knew is that there were going to be a couple apes and they'll be there. Also in Anaheim, I think. Yeah. And, you know, Chris Jericho, you know, it's the reason why you're in so many of the guest host segments. It's like he'll he's a pro. He'll work with the Hollywood stars, i.e. two guys in ape suits. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He'll work like a pro and he's always got this antagonistic relationship with Stephanie. So I think it was like in talking events, it's like, oh, you get, get Jericho, have him bring out the apes. Apes will hit Stephanie with the cake because apes hate cake. And, uh, you know, you write it, you figure it out how to do it, but uh, call Chris and let him know he's going to be working with the apes. So that's always the thing, because I used to get that as well with with matches. It's like, how are we supposed to do this? And he'd be like, I just booked the shit. You figure it out. Yeah. You mentioned the, the, the Hollywood guest hosts, and there was so many times that I was in every week with those guys. Tell us some of the highlights and lowlights of the Hollywood guest host, which is when we went through our phase where we were like Saturday Night Live and we had a different guest every week. Yeah. I mean, not probably for a reason that not a lot is said about the guest host era. I know, but it was a whole year. People don't realize it lasted a year. I mean, that's a long time. That was longer than the invasion, you know, longer than many, many title runs. And yeah, I dedicate a whole chapter in the book to it. It's great. Because it it was one of those things, you know, like everything, it starts out altruistic 
It starts out with good intentions. And and the title of the chapter, by the way, is Summerfest Tales from the Guest Host <laughs> Era, which is great. For those yeah. for those who don't know, yeah. Yeah, for those who don't know, that was uh, Mr. Jeremy Piven, one of the first guest hosts, you know, in Mohegan Sun, so a tough East Coast audience out there calling SummerSlam Summerfest. Yes. And the audience just absolutely <sighs> hating life after that. Yeah. Thankfully, he was also with Ken Jong, Dr. Ken, who uh, did his best to get heel heat and then took a spectacular bump out of the ring and banged his head on the steel steps after <laughs> being a kid, nothing bad would happen. But he was so psyched about, you know, because he's a huge fan uh, that it all turned out well. But yeah, that was, you know, again, like sometimes you pitch an idea not really understanding the implications of what you're pitching. So for me, it was like we were kind of tired of the heel authority figure. You know, we feel we had done that to death. We, you know, with Mr. McMahon, it was great. With Bischoff, it was great. But then, you know, eventually it waned. And, you know, Regal, when he did it, he was great. But again, it's so many heel authority figures that the formula, especially when you're you know, 52 weeks a year and Babyface comes out and the heel just, you know, puts them in a precarious position and what have you, it, like it's a little tiresome. So taking a page from the Chris, literally the Chris Jericho book and uh, knocking yourself down a level. I had the idea of Adam Lee, Mike Adam Lee, the announcer as the GM with the idea that he would be more like Michael Scott from the office. <laughs> He's not, because again, he had his own Summerfest moment when he started, he called Jeff Hardy, Jeff Harvey live at the Royal Rumble and fans immediately like, we hate you forever now. Yeah. So like, what if it wasn't a malevolent force as the GM, but it was just someone who was completely in over their head and didn't know any better and was, you know, trying to make friends with the boys, but creating disaster. It just seemed like it could be a, you know, at least a different approach to the authority figure angle. But, you know, we didn't put Mike in a position to succeed at all because Mike is a sports broadcaster. He's not really a character you know, we were taking his real life foibles and kind of making it into a character. And he's a really pleasant guy and great guy, you know, off camera and everything. But we were giving him so much exposition. And like, he, you know, he eventually was reading it off a clipboard and everything and just did not. Come yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just pretty brutal. So we pivoted quickly off of that. And it was like, you know, and I proposed, like, what if it was like a different WWE legend every week who is in charge? So you could have a mixture of baby face, heel, you know, sometimes, you know, ambiguous. You don't know what they're going to do. And Vince did like that idea. And then Stephanie, you know, added on to it and said, oh, we could even mix celebrities every now and then amongst the legends. And then, you know, for some reason that turned into, damn it, we'll have a celebrity every week. All right. The quote was, it'll be like Saturday Night Live, only better. I mean, maybe if you go into the, 1980, you know, <laughs> the Robert Downey Jr. years. Yeah. <laughs> you could maybe make a, a claim for something like that, the, the Mary Gross era or what have you. But <laughs> this was not going to be only better. Not only did we have a different celebrity, you know, of various, you know, levels, but we made the key mistake of not adjusting the authority figure aspect of it because mm. these celebrities had power. They were making matches. Right, right. And some of them, you know, not to crap all over the era, there were some really, really, really Oh, hell yeah. Guys. Bob Barker, best ever. 
Yeah. I mean, you and Shaq. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Big Show. You know, that was classic. You know, obviously, I write extensively <laughs> about Bob Barker and that segment. I mean, that's one of my favorite shows ever, really. Agreed. That was such a great, he was so great for, for me. Uh, Mike Tyson was great. Ozzy and yeah. Sharon were great. I mean, there was some really great TV in that time. It, if the guest host era was like a one one month out of the year kind of excursion, or even was just limited maybe to two months, it wouldn't be like, it wouldn't be a banger every single show, but there would at least, it would be remembered fondly. Mm. I think we ended it after Barker. It would have been like, yeah. oh, remember when they did that? That was kind of fun. Yeah. Maybe they should do that again. Right. But now it's like David Hasselhoff is making the main event of SummerSlam. <laughs> and it's like, oh, what what are, what are we doing? But there were, yeah, there were some really good shows amongst them. Who were who some of the worst ones? I can give you a list of my, my least favorite ones that I worked with. Well, all right. Well, you want to you want to do a little experiment here on the count sure. of three? Say the worst one. Okay. One, two, three. Al Sharpton. Sharpton. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed that one. <laughs> yep. Why was Sharpton so bad? Well, you know, it's funny. I was on vacation that week, so I actually <laughs> that was totally myself. legit, right there, guys. By the way, that was completely real. That was. We did not. There was no chicanery there. Yeah. I got an idea. I'm going to write a book <laughs> when we talk about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a one, two, three. No, you know, honestly, and this isn't like a knock against Al Sharpton. This is more of just like a general, there's a distinct difference between guest hosts who were on the show and who were fans of WWE and fans of wrestling. And even what people who weren't necessarily huge wrestling fans, but were a hundred percent committed right. to doing it. Right. I remember like Don Heater, Napoleon Dynamite. Like, I don't know how huge a WWE fan he was. But he was like literally up for anything. Mm -hmm. He wore a cape. He called himself the flame, I think, you know, and was yeah. like taking a bump. Like he was really like happy to be there. And yeah. And there were other others. Like I remember Bradley Cooper showed up with kind of like a like a glazed smile. Like, what the fuck am I doing here? What is this? There were those like, yeah, that A-team show was like, OK, the studio told us we need to show up to Raw to promote the movie. Right. What is this? The wrestling? What is this? Yeah. Yeah, this isn't what we're, you know, like I'm doing this because I need to promote the film. And and I think in, in Al Sharpton's case, you know, he was I don't, I don't even know what I don't remember specifically why he was there. I think maybe it had to do a little bit with WWE always like looking for legitimacy in yeah. spaces outside of wrestling. So whether it be. Well, not to mention, too, that we all know that Martin Luther King is Vince's hero. Yeah, one of Vince's heroes, and Al Sharpton was like a disciple or a young boy in 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 Martin Luther King's camp. So Vince was super excited because this was a direct link to Martin Luther King. Yeah, and and it was and it was also you know a, a someone who had their own show on you know I forget which cable news outlet he had, but you know he's very famous. Yeah, legit guy. Yeah, yeah, but from a wwe standpoint from a how good is raw going to be standpoint i don't really think he had any interest in doing a, a bit with santino or <laughs> yeah exactly i think he was like all right i'm gonna go out i think he was out in seg one he was out the door afterwards it was like i'm gonna do my thing and leave and when you have that dynamic on the show you know the fans are are razor sharp they know who's there to have fun and who's there to promote something right and who's there going through the motions and who's there and literally, you know, again, like living their dream 
and they could tell. So, you know, when you have Al in that case, you know, it wasn't anything like not a, like a personal knock against Al Sharpton or, or him, even as a performer. It was just like he's there to do his thing, promote whatever he's promoting and then leave. It wasn't like contrast, like Bob Barker episode. Right. Yes. You know, I met with him in his hotel room. Uh, me and Dave Kapoor, and we met and drank white wine and wrote, like, went over every single line of the show for hours beforehand to the point where, like, he's, like, doing karate moves and showing us, you know, what he learned from Chuck Norris and everything. Uh, and it translated onto the show because you could tell he wasn't there. He was there to promote his book, Priceless Memories, and his charity, but he was also there to fully immerse himself into the show and have fun. It's funny. A few years ago, I had him on talk as Jericho. Oh, that's awesome. And he, he, I, I usually need 45 to 60 minutes. I think his people said, Bob will do 30. I'm like, that's fine. That's whatever, whatever he needs. And so I talked to him, like, and I, we were talking about Raw and talking about that. And it took him about 15 minutes. He's like, wait a second. You're Chris Jericho? I was like, yes. He goes, oh, I thought you were just a big fan of that segment of that show. So he, he remembered it very fondly about how much fun we had because he was the best guest host of the era for, for sure. Yeah, that was like all the pieces coming together yeah. as far as like the set was great, the graphics were spot on, and the crowd, Chicago. Yes. Oh, man. We, th- we, we thought at first might eat Bob Barker alive, but he. Yeah. we should have known better. He's such a pro. He had them in the palm of his hand right out of the gate. Yeah, we, we definitely had that fear because it's not like there was like a lot of warm feelings about like the celebrity guest host era going into that show. You know, in Chicago, who it's like, you know, they they witnessed Austin versus Bret Hart at WrestleMania. <laughs> yes, <okay>? exactly. <laughs> it's like, you know, they're they have a high standard, but Bob completely had him in the palm of their hand, his hand. It was awesome. In the book that you mentioned, there's so many great moments and great guys that you love to work with. Who were your favorites to work with? And tell us some of your favorite segments that pop out for each one. Like if you say Rock or you say Kurt, like what, which ones pop out for you? I mean, for Rock, I loved working on those rock concerts with him when he would, you know, have his guitar and especially when he was a heel. Yeah. Be able to, you know, incite the crowd. You know, I, I, I do write about the concept of cheap heat. You know, Vince and I got into a lot of arguments about cheap heat. You know, for those who don't know, that's like getting an easy boo. I, my opinion on it was always like, if you're making fun of the Columbus Blue Jackets because you happen to be in Columbus, you're never going to win a championship just like the Blue Jackets. <laughs> they're, they're the Blue Jackets, right? I yeah, think yeah, they are, yeah. Then, yeah, that's cheap. There's nothing very creative about it. But if you could, like, tap into Sacramento's crushing defeat in the NBA playoffs to the Lakers – in an unexpected way through the power of song <laughs> like we did in the, in the rock concert when he, when heel rock was cutting his promo and, 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 you know, conversely as a baby face, when we were in the midst of the rock John Cena stuff and, you know, at the time, you know, there's a whole chapter dedicated to rock and Cena. And yeah. that, that was as real as a legit heat that they had with each other. Yeah. And, and like, you know, John had a, a rap earlier in the show. You know, Rock didn't know anything about what the rap was going to entail. Conversely, John didn't know anything about what the uh, song that Rock was going to do later was going to have included in it. So, you know, and Rock really at the time, it needed to be I mean, it always needs to be awesome. 
but especially, you know, John had a very effective rap and it got like a lot of ooh lines and everything. And it's like, this needs to be good. So to be able to like work with rock, you know, on the rock concerts, like just like me and him in a hotel room. And then later me, him and Hiram Garcia, uh, the president of seven bucks rocks, you know, former brother-in-law, everything else, you know, just throwing out, you know, the most outrageous stuff you could possibly imagine. Most of it not getting on the air for fear of, uh, you know, Reprisal, being, yeah. yeah, but, um, that was just, yeah, that was just a ton of fun to do. And all the early, I mean, working with Kurt is always great, but like, especially early on, because Kurt and I couldn't be more different from a, <laughs> from an athletic standpoint, I was on, I was on the high school bowling team before I injured myself. <laughs> Before you injured yourself. <laughs> I injured myself somehow. I had to wear a cast and I was only made it through half the year. And Kurt, you know, achieved some stuff in athletics, if you hadn't heard. But when he first started, his debut was Survivor Series 99. That was my third week in the company. So we really, you know, just got to put our trust in each other and just come up with the most absolutely ridiculous things as far as, you know, whether it was going on the Penn State campus, Olympic heroes for abstinence and like, you know, browbeating Penn State students uh, in terms of <laughs> the uh, dangers of uh, premarital <laughs> sex and stuff like that, or the promo with, with Rey Mysterio when we're just coming up with like the most inappropriate on paper type, you know, you're a boy and I'm a man. And when I get on top of you, you know, like that kind yeah, of, yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. You know, no, wait a minute. That's not what I meant. You know, like all that kind of thing. He had, you know, such perfect comedic timing mm -hmm. for someone who had never, he's, he, you know, you know, Kurt's story, like waking up at 4am yeah, doing intense, crazy workouts, 24, 23 hours, sleeping for one hour, getting back into it. Like who knew he had any of that? comedic ability no, he, he really was a natural not just in the ring but like you mentioned this untapped personality that we found well you, you know you found he found to where you know that sense of humor to this day is still there Absolutely. very self-deprecating as well for a guy that could have come in and, and stretched the entire roster very quickly learned that that wasn't going to cut it in pro wrestling yeah and, and 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 you know the idea that was crafted of kurt coming in as a heel when he's an olympic hero right you know, which Kurt himself wasn't exactly on board with or sure of at first was really like a, like a masterstroke. That was a really great idea. Not mine. Uh, I think it was Vince's, mm. but it, it really like set the table for like this really strange entity of this like nerd and goody two shoes who you just want to smack in the face, but can legitimately destroy you in a matter of seconds. Mm -hmm. It's just it's such a strange dichotomy. So he's such a great character and human being. And, you know, obviously anytime there was a Y2J promo or, or segment or something to, to do nefarious and William Regal's tea or whatever it was, <laughs> that was just like, you know, not having to. Let's mention this too, because we talk about a lot of the funny stuff that we did together. I love the dueling promos that rock and I did or the goofy handshake, but on a serious note, from a storytelling standpoint, you were really involved in the Jericho Shawn Michaels feud in 2008 and nine. We put together that whole story. I remember you, me, Shawn, and I think maybe Michael Hayes would get together every couple of weeks and kind of craft the next three or four weeks of what we're going to do in this seven, eight month long saga that we created. Absolutely. Yeah. You're not going to really have longevity or, or that much. You could have longevity. You're not going to have 
that much success, you know, as a writer at WWE, if you just like pigeonhole yourself into one thing. So, yes, I, I mean, I love the stories and love talking about all the comedic things, but I took a lot more pride in, to your point, the serious, long money making angle. Right. Like, like you and Sean, uh, you know, being able to work on Batista and Triple H, you know, like those kinds of things with you and Sean, that's probably the angle, the storyline that I take the most pride in being able to contribute to and work on because, you know, I was friends with you coming in, but when Sean came back, I wasn't really friends with Sean. Mm. In fact, like the first time I met Sean, I was going over a promo with rock and he like was like, so rock's got his own personal writer. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go again. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, the, it, Sorry, I'm in I'm in New York, so there's. It's all right. Can't be New York without sirens in the back. But you know that relationship over time, there was a mutual respect that grew and a trust really that grew. You know, to be able to work on a on a on a very serious angle that sprouted in realism because you were the heel, but you, what you were pointing out, I, you know, I don't remember the specifics, but it was like Sean is the referee who who was like faking an injury. He was he was a hypocrite. Yeah, yeah, that was all correct. Yeah. And that was like, you were completely justified, but you were a heel. So therefore, you know, the fans weren't going to be on board with what you were saying because it was like, yeah, but it's Shawn Michaels. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're asked Jericho and you're like, no, in fact, I'm going to double down on the ass sticking. I'm going to wear a suit. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be completely serious. I'm going to talk very slow and you're going to, you're going to have to listen to me because I'm not going to shout to, uh, you know, just because your guys are being loud. You know, and to be able to work with you and Sean on that and, and Michael on like the action and stuff culminating. How long did that go? Like well over a year. It wasn't over a year. It was about eight months, but it was only meant to be one month. I think it started in April and went all the way to September or October of the of that year. But there was also, you know, there were seeds of it that that kind of like went from your WrestleMania yeah, 19. Sure, sure. So there was like some history. So it extended even though like, yeah, consecutively it was like eight months or whatever. But that was really great because, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, WWE, AEW, doesn't matter. Like wrestling doesn't make money off of funny moments. It helps. Funny don't make money. Yeah. It's one of your chapters. Yeah. That's true. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's debatable in terms of just, you know, how exact that is. But at the end of the day, it's like the angles and the, and the matches and the angles that lead up to the matches where you desperately want to see one person kick another person's ass that, you know, sells tickets, sells pay-per-view, gets viewers and stuff like that. So you really need to, as a writer, like, you know, be cognizant of the big picture and be able to put some money-making ideas forth. So now you're uh, uh, one of the top execs for, for Dwayne Johnson, Seven Bucks Productions, and you had obviously such a, you know, Rock's personal writer, but you've done some, you could probably do a podcast just on all the stuff you've done with Rock writing all the speeches for his Oscars and all that sort of stuff. But what did you learn or some of the, the things that you learned from Vince and working in the WWE for so long that you can take and use in all forms of entertainment? Cause I know I have probably a dozen things that I've learned that I can, that I use everywhere that I go, no matter if it's wrestling or I just did a, a show this week in LA where you just, there's a work ethic there. There's, there's different advice and lessons that you learned. How about for you? Yeah, well, a lot, you know, there's definitely a life lessons in terms of, uh, you know, the WWE way of doing things that stick with you today as far as like, it's interesting because there's like a, 
in certainly in in Hollywood, there's like a certain hierarchy that the the phrase like we do everybody's job isn't necessarily applicable. Mm-hmm. But in WWE, if something needs to be done, it doesn't matter if that's quote unquote not your job. If you're on the team, you do it. Yeah. And you do it for the sake of the team and making sure that the thing gets done. And you don't sit and go, wait a minute, that's not what I signed up for. It's like, I'm part of this team. And especially when I mean, we're not talking exactly about life altering type of chores or stuff like that. You know, the the idea of <laughs> eating shit and liking the taste of it sometimes. Classic Vince quote. Classic Vince quote. And, and basically it just means like, yeah, there's some things you're not going to like and some things that you're not going to agree with. But for the sake of, you know, the overall picture and getting things done and making sure you know, that the important stuff is taken care of. Sometimes you need to put your personal preferences aside or take a hit to the ego or what have you in order to look at the the, the grander scale and the bigger picture. It's like one of those things, you know, and, and, and treating every day like it's your first day on the job. That's more, I don't know, it's more in, sometimes in theory than in practice because it's hard to sometimes compartmentalize that. But the the idea I think behind that the idea behind the idea in that case I think is is very valid and strong which is just because something is done a certain way all the time doesn't mean that that automatically has to be wrote and be the way to do things you know sometimes you got to look at things like with a fresh set of eyes like yeah I know this is how we always do it but yeah what if we do it this way what if it's you know something that we had never considered before mm-hmm. and I know this is very general but it does it does apply pretty much you know wwe or otherwise last two questions for you once again we now live in the era that none of us probably ever thought was actually going to happen which is a, a a wwe post vince mcmahon how do you think the company will do with this new mindset because obviously vince did things his, his way there was a genius there will it be for the better will it hinder just thoughts on the fact that he's not there anymore yeah, it's a little surreal watching it from afar, as I'm sure it is for you, too. Yes. You know, because you can't quite imagine it. People don't even know all the business things and board meetings and marketing and all those type of things that he was, you know, directly involved in. But it, it seems like the mindset, you know, that has been kind of instilled is applicable you know, right now because it, it seems like everyone... Again, I don't know. I don't. I mean, I, I was at. Um, <laughs> I went to the garden when when Raw was there a couple of weeks ago, and it was just like any other show. You know, there's talent running around. There's people going over their matches, practicing their promos, what have you. But it seems like everyone is, you know, energized and wanting to like step up to the plate and prove themselves. And within the company, I would imagine this is just my opinion, but anyone who's kind of thinking like oh, everyone thinks it's going to be, you know, we're going to be like this rudderless, doom and gloom, slow Viking ship, you know, uh, (laughs) sailing off into oblivion. Uh, Think again, because, you know, we have ideas, we have, you know, approaches, energies, you know, what have you, that we are more than excited to put into practice and show the world what we can do. And and I think it was, you know, kind of like, you know, that culture is instilled in a way in which is like, okay, Austin goes down, I'm going to step up right. from a wrestling standpoint. You know, when I started, like Russo and Ferrara, they left for WCW. Great. I'm going to show what I can do. I think there's like a, a lot of that. I, you know, if given a chance, I'm going to knock it out of the ballpark. And I just, you know, want to be able to uh, show the world what I got. And I think that kind of permeates. 
It really is like Saturday Night Live. Somebody leaves, someone else comes in and, and, and fills the gap, you know? Yeah. Last question for you. Is there an all-time segment or promo that you were involved with that you wrote that stands out as your favorite? Man, you know, I really should have I really should have put some more thought <laughs> going into this thing other than our mutual distaste for the Al Sharpton show. <laughs> um, this is the one that pops in your head. I mean, it might not be, you know, the, something that stands out to you. I really I really liked and and it's and it's, you know, write about it in the book as well, but like the idea of you know, just as a promo, Rock making fun of everybody in that Armageddon match in 2000. Right. Where, like, we had some success with him imitating Triple H. And then, you know, we kind of just, can you pull this off as far as literally imitating everybody in the match? That includes Austin. That includes Undertaker. That includes Kurt. That includes Rikishi. That includes Triple H again. I don't know. We think you could do it. And, you know, rock being rock. It's like, well, I don't know, but we're going to do it and we're going to do it live. So, <laughs> you know, to see that and to see that like still replayed 20 years later, even though backstage it got, you know, as I would later find out a ton of heat amongst the boys who were parodied, who didn't necessarily uh, see the hilarity in it. <laughs> For me to see the audience react to it, that was a lot of fun. And that was like 13 months into my tenure there. Where upon like doing a promo like that, I was like, this is going to be, this is going to be a fun place to work. Well, dude, you made it a fun place for many years and the book is great. Uh, so much more we could discuss, but we'll save it for, for the next time, dude. But it's always great talking to you. <laughs> and uh, once again, the book is really, really good. So it's worth uh, checking out and uh, congratulations on all your success post WWE. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate you having me. Appreciate the kind words and congrats to you too. When uh, next time uh, Fozzie is either in New York or Memphis, where we're shooting Young Rock this year. Oh, uh, nice. You gotta let me know. Well, you could also jump You could uh, jump the barricade and come to an AEW show and really shake it up. Oh, yeah. That would be great. The key, that, that key words is going to destroy AEW now. He's all elite. <laughs> <laughs> all right, dude. Good talking to you, man. All right. Thanks, Chris. Talk soon.